one of the things that the leaders that are listening to this podcast are all going to have to deal with is leading organizational change. And, uh, you know, the, the joke I like to say is, you know, nobody likes change, but they, they won't be against progress. Uh, and so if you could frame it as progress rather than change, uh, you might get uh, some folks, uh, more folks to buy into it. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Slow Smoke Business Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Morgan. Thanks for being with us today. And we have my new friend, David Fivecoat, on the show. Welcome, David. Hey, Jared. Happy to be on today. David is a military hero. He has a long career in the military. He has brought a lot of leadership training into the private sector. So I want to talk to David about leadership and uh, and also drink a little bit, a little bit with David. He's got a, I believe, what do you got there? PBR? I got a, I, I got a PBR ready to go with, to, to compliment the chicken. And, uh, I've got a little bit of peerless rye in a glass with just, just ice. And today we are cooking some chicken. We know people that watch the show a lot. If you're watching along on Facebook or on YouTube, uh, you know, I do chicken a lot. So this is a whole chicken. You see that, David? Yeah, that looks great. This is a, uh, a whole chicken. It's kind of flattened because we did a lot of maneuvering this thing a little bit, but we, uh, have stuffed it with jalapeno cornbread, not actually cooked cornbread. It's just like the cornbread, uh, you know, uncooked. And then we've stuffed that in there and then we seasoned it with, uh, a pecan barbecue rub, which is my favorite hashtag, not a sponsor, uh, from our friends at meat, meat church. Um, and, uh, we're going to put this on the grill and just kind of let it cook. Now, when I cook stuff with jalapeno in it, what that usually means is I get it all because nobody in the house actually likes to eat spicy stuff. <laughs> and so that's like a little hack for me, right? I make a little something spicy and I get all of it. And it's, uh, it's so floppy with the, the stuff in there that I can't do it with tongs. And so I'm going to try to do it with uh, gloved hands. Here we go. God, it looks like a frog almost. I've crumpled it up so much. Got a good sizzle going there, baby. What do you think, David? Does that look good? That looks great. You ever do any grilling in your, uh, in your backyard over there? David's in Columbus, Georgia. So it should be, it's not a, that's not a totally far-fetched idea. Yeah, no, I've got a, I've got a grill on the, on the back stoop. Uh, I'd like to do uh, bratwurst, uh, burgers, and some steaks on the grill. But I, I'm not a grill master like you are. I would not call myself. I would call myself an enthusiast, but not a master. Right? I've not leveled up to that level. So we're gonna hit it a little more. I like my stuff heavily seasoned, and when you have like, you use something like a pecan rub. You know, it's mostly sugar and spices and stuff like that. But it's not spicy, so you know you're not gonna nuke people with flavor there. Jared, what was the seasoning that you put on? So again, we have a little joke on the show. We have no sponsors. So we say hashtag not a sponsor. And so at some point I'm going to stop giving these guys free advertising. Uh, but we went with the D's nuts from meat church. Um, I do think they've toned down the branding on this one. It is uh, it is a pecan rub. So it's got like brown sugar and I think granulated honey in it, but, but also like pecans in it. And so it gives it kind of a nice little, it's just a different flavor. You know, it's not just all sugar. It's kind of got a little earthiness to it and it's nice. I've never met anybody that didn't like that. I've also never met a piece of meat that that seasoning did not improve. Yeah. And it's uh, it keeps to your Southern roots with, uh, you know, pecan country around here. 
pecan, pecan, right? Or pecan. Or I think I was talking to my producer, and I think I heard him say the pecan, pecan, pecan. One to nuts. It's pecan, pecan, if you want to get real southern. It's definitely pecan. So we got the grill on. It's pecan. Okay. <laughs> pecan. I forgot to put the uh, the probes in there. Let me do that so we can keep an eye on it. These probes are like barbecue cheating, man. It's like uh, it's so easy to cook things right when you've got the probes in them. And it's uh, just got a digital reading there on the side that I can keep a, an eye on. So, man, yeah, last episode we made some picanha using the probes and everything. That is one of my new favorite things to do. It's like sort of like a different kind of beef cut instead of brisket. It's like a different kind. Cut the fat off, slow roasted. Good God, that was good. How long do you have to leave that on the grill? Probably about two hours. Not long. You know, two hours, slow, two, 250, 225 to 250. Kind of kept it in that range and, you know, pulled it off right at kind of medium rare temperature. And man, oh man, like just kind of cut some strips of it. You know, you can do the, uh, what they call it, chimichurri on that too. I didn't have any. Um, but just like a brisket rub and doing that clean like that was, man get you some of that. Yeah. No, that sounds great. <laughs> I do a pulled pork in the in the slow cooker, which is which is sort of my Okay. That's my house specialty. Yeah, pork is pork you can do I mean if you start melting the fat inside of pork and let it kind of marry with the meat. There's all sorts of goodness that can happen there whether you've got smoke going or not. Like that stuff tastes good. Yeah. Sorry to my uh my vegetarian vegan brothers out there, but this is this is not a vegan podcast. <laughs> You'll have to do the the almost meat uh, uh, for uh, for one of the episodes. I'm not doing that. That's I <laughs> so. Well, what? So the no the reason that you know there's something wrong with impossible meats is if it's so great, why do I have to make it look like meat? Why do I have to call it an impossible hamburger? Why do I have to call it a hamburger if it's so great? Why can't it just be? you know, leaf juice or whatever the hell it is, right? Why do I have to try to pretend like it's, you know, if it's so great, why do we, I don't know, what's the analogy for that? Like, oh man, no, you should totally drive this gas car. Uh, you should drive this electric car, but you're, you're going to pretend like you're putting the gas in it every time because it's just going to feel right. Or it's no man, like embrace what it is. If you're trying to eat, you know, whatever, dirt paste or whatever they do to put in that stuff. Like I'm, I'm not for it. I don't need to be faked. That's just, it's unnatural. It's unholy. <laughs> All right. Strong, Enough strong opinion, <laughs> strong opinions on fake, on <laughs> fake meat. <laughs> Enough about that. Yeah. Fake meat was the name of my band in college. Anyway. Um, so David, long career in the military. Tell me a little bit about that. When did you get into the military? What branch were you in? Yeah. So, um, I grew up in in a little town uh, in Ohio called Delaware, Delaware, Ohio, right north of Columbus. Uh, I am an Ohio State Buckeye fan, so uh, wow, your, your SEC fans uh, out here. Uh, I'm uh, I, I was up in uh, the Mercedes Benz uh, Stadium uh, for the playoffs, and um, wow. I took my daughter with me, who's who's jumped ship on me, and she's now a Georgia fan, and so she oh. was su- <laughs> she was super happy when. Uh, Ohio State missed the field goal, and I was super sad. What what a what a moment that was! By the way, so I'm a Florida alum, right? And 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 gleefully lived through the Urban Meyer years. What's your thoughts on Urban Meyer as a as a Buckeye? Good, bad, <sighs> like fond memories. Wish he never showed up. What do you think? Every program he leaves is is sort of you know 
is under a cloud, you know, and he, yeah. he, he, he struggled, uh, at, uh, you know, in the pros as well, you know, Florida, he left with a bad taste, Ohio state, he left with a bad oh, yeah. taste. And then, uh, there he's an okay guy. I enjoyed reading his, his book, um, on, on leadership and how they created the team and some of the things that, that, that are important to him as a coach. Uh, but man, he's there, there's something there on the ethics side. Uh, that, that isn't, it's almost right, but it's not quite right. It's almost like that impossible meets kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> the impossible coach. Right? No, I think <laughs> there's something to learn from that situation though. Cause I think, you know, I, I feel like, you know, when I was younger and he first got to Florida and I was only a year or two off campus at that point, like I had just left and I just thought that guy was the greatest example of a go-getter that you could possibly, I just thought he was the, I thought he was everything. Right. And I studied the way he talked, the way he led his teams, the way he organized him, himself and everything else. And I learned through the years that you can't like, you can't completely 100% idolize human beings because there's always a side of every single person that you're like, mm, I need some of this. Like there's absolutely some things you could look at Urban Meyer's life and go, wow, there's some incredible stuff to emulate there. A lot of lessons to learn. But then there's also like a whole bunch of stuff where you're like, yeah, I don't want any of that. Right. I don't want to the whole work yourself into an early grave, health situations, quit a job, join a job, kind of win at all costs, kind of garbage. Like that's I'll 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 do without that. Human beings have have human limitations, and unfortunately, we built some folks up on a pedestal that uh, you know they've got the same limitations that everybody else does, and the same flaws, and and they aren't perfect. And uh, Urban's a good example. Yeah, I, I, you're spot on. You know, he's very well organized, had a great idea with offense, and really uh, you oh, know, yeah. approached the game uh, innovatively. You know, he, he he found a way to win with Tim Tebow that that nobody else could, and uh, but then there's some ethics kind of things that aren't quite right. And yeah, just, just decision-making is not, not real great there, but so I, I derailed your, your conversation about your military career. So yeah. you said Buckeyes, like I said, football, <laughs> let's talk about that. But so what branch did you end up in? Yeah. So, so I, I went to West Point. Um, wow. Mainly because I loved reading about military history. And of course, all the world War two generals had attended West Point. Um, I applied early, got in, and and made the decision to go, and uh, ended up branching infantry. So I was an army officer that served in the infantry. I led uh, platoons, uh, which is about forty guys, companies, which is one hundred and twenty wow. battalions, which is about seven hundred, and then a brigade, uh, which is a couple of thousand uh, folks. Um, I did along the way. I went to Korea for a year. I went to Kosovo for six months, Bosnia for six months, uh, three trips to Iraq and a, a trip to Afghanistan. Uh, the trip to Afghanistan, I was the battalion commander, uh, which is a 700 person organization. Uh, and we had a really tough fight in 2010 and 2011 down in uh, Southeast Afghanistan. Um, wow. And so uh, eventually I culminated my career here at Fort Benning, Georgia, which is, which is right down the road from where I am in Columbus, Georgia, um, as the commander of the airborne and ranger training brigade. So I ran our airborne school, which, uh, produces paratroopers and teaches folks how to fall out of a plane, uh, and, and walk away from it. 
and also Ranger School, which is the Army's premier small unit leadership school. Wow. And so in 17, I transitioned just like you and uh, tried to figure out uh, this corporate world uh, thing. Yeah. So you sort of alluded to it there. Um, you know, I've recently retired from the company I started, Proctor U, and the transition is interesting, right? I'm, I'm still in the early stages of it. So you do something for, for me, it was a decade and a half. And really, like, if I think about the origins of the story, it's really about 18 years is really kind of where the journey kind of began. Um, what is transition? I mean, you're, you're a few years ahead of me in that. So what did your transition look like? I, I would say the move to civilian life out of the military is infinitely more complex than the move I've made. So what was that transition like for you? Yeah. Um, transitions are interesting. Um, you know, you're, you're in the, in the early stages and I'm sure, uh, one of the big things is the, with your transition is your identity, uh, was tied to being part of this company. I think, I think you were a founder of it. So oh, yeah. I was you, founder, you went yeah. from, from zero to whatever with that company and, and your identity was totally tied up to it. My identity was, was, was tied up with being in the military because I had been in the military from age 18, uh, to 46. Uh, and you know, it, it was a large, uh, part of my adult life. Um, with anybody that goes through one of these, uh, transitions, uh, one of the big things to think about is how are you going to reinvent your identity? Um, one of the strategies that I used as a bridging uh, kind of solution was uh, ath athletics. Um, I always loved the portion of the army that we got to work out and get paid for it. I'm like, hey, I'm a professional athlete uh, because you know every morning from 6:30 in the morning till eight, I get paid to work out, and <laughs> that was one of the, the the big things that I loved about the army. And so uh, when I got out of the army, I continued. Uh, my pursuit of athletics. I, I got into triathlons and I raced a couple of half Ironmans uh, and then COVID hit. And at that point in time, I decided I couldn't get to the pool because the pool is closed. And I was like, okay, I'll just focus on cycling. Uh, and so throughout this, you know, now it's uh, almost a six, seven year journey uh, post army. Uh, athletics has been important to me and it's been one of those sort of bridging things that's helped me create a new identity. Um, in this case, uh, as a small business owner, a person that's an executive coach, uh, that does leadership training, uh, also athletics is an important part of my life. Um, for you, um, as you approach this transition from, you're still on the board, so you're still involved with the company, but yeah. how are you thinking about reinventing your identity as, as you go forward? Well, I very, I very rarely get interviewed myself on this podcast, so thank you for asking me a question. I would say that's probably the hardest thing um, about this transition because, you know, I started something from the ground up, um, and I remember moments of people saying, you know, that Proctor U, which went on to be, you know, something that people use on every continent on the planet and you know, millions and millions of people are using it. I remember when it was, my friends would refer to it as that crazy thing that Jared's doing that I keep seeing him kind of mention half heartedly on Facebook that he's like doing this, you know, and, uh, and so, and, and there's all these photos of my daughters, you know, visiting me at the office and pretending to sit at a computer and operate it like a proctor and, you know, and hugging our little mascot suit that we had and, 
And so when you sort of wind up all of that stuff into your story, it very much becomes a part of who you are. And I'm sure for your story, like, I mean, I could, it wouldn't be hard for me to just pilfer through the photo albums of your life. And there's just military everywhere, right? It's, it's a part of who you are. There's photos of you in Afghanistan and everywhere else, right? And so it really becomes, when you, when you dedicate yourself to something like that for so long, it really becomes a part of who you are. And when you're introduced to people and things like it's the first sentence people say about you is, oh, that's the guy that's da, 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 right. Yeah. And so when that thing changes and it's abruptly like no longer a part of who you currently are, it's who you were. Um, you know, I spent some time. I, th this podcast is really something that came from the self-reflection of realizing that that was coming. Um, so you, you had talked about like thinking about yourself as a professional athlete. I started thinking about myself as somebody that had had a lot of crazy business experiences that didn't listen, I'm a college dropout. Like I didn't, I didn't finish college. I didn't get my bachelor's degree and I didn't go get an MBA. And yet I've been asked to speak at Columbia university and I've done all these like lectures and all these other things. And so I think there's a lot for me to share with people that haven't got, hadn't had access to a lot of the super upper level training of a Harvard business school or something like that. But I would take my experience and put it alongside really anybody's kind of MBA sort of know-how. And that was that was the part that sort of gave me an opportunity to say, that's what I want to be in this next chapter, right? Is I want to be a guy who makes this type of information approachable. And and that's why, you know, we grill out. That's why we're it's such a low-key kind of podcast. Is I wanted to make a business podcast for people that don't like business podcasts so that they could learn. But it it was that I had to kind of go through that exercise of like, who am I and what am I about? Um, but I, I had this, I'm curious to see if you had the same experience, but I had this realization a couple of years ago that some of the greatest uh, breakthroughs in my life came right after a period of reinvention. So I kind of look back in my life and I realized like some of the best things I ever accomplished, the things I'm the most proud of building a business, you know, restarting, but, you know, getting remarried to my wife, Amanda, and just all these things came after a season of complete reinvention. And that gave me a lot of peace in going into this season and that, yeah, I'm going to need to reinvent myself a little bit. But historically, some of the best things I've ever done and the things I'm the most proud of came after that reinvention. Did you feel that going into this, that you needed to do some kind of reinvention of yourself? It's sort of the same thing. Um, I phrase it uh, a, a, a little bit differently. And um, the, the fact, one of the things, and maybe it was my own reinvention, was uh, I needed to be open to some new ideas. And, um, so the first thing, um, so I start, I found, I found, I, I got out of the army and I worked for another company for a couple of years and then, uh, left that company in early 20 and decided to found my own company in March of 2020. So, you know, perfect business time to start a company. Um, <laughs> And I wanted, uh, you know, I sort of wanted to do leadership training and, um, you know, t talks and stuff like that. And, and that's what I wanted to do with it. Um, one of the more interesting things as I, you know, just like every small business owner, you know, I went a, a, a whole quarter without a client. 
Um, you know, I'm wondering like, Hey, am I going to be able to keep the lights on? And, you know, it's the middle of COVID we're locked down and, you know, all, all, all this, all this challenging. Um, uh, but one of the more, one of the things, and, and maybe you went through the same thing when you started your company, but I was open to new ideas. And at one point in time, I was talking to this client that I thought I was going to get some work out of. And, uh, she was like, Hey, do you, you know, you're kind of gritty. You've done some gritty gritty things. Why don't you look at this uh, guy's stuff that we're thinking about hiring to teach grit to the company? <laughs> yeah. I, so I, I led a battle in Afghanistan. That's a little gritty. Yeah. Right? yeah. That's, that's a gritty, that's a gritty <laughs> thing. A, so, so I looked at the guy's stuff and I had read Angela Duckworth's stuff and I, I thought they were both, uh, they were both good, but I thought they both missed out on sort of creating a path or a process to build grit in yourself, which is what we, what we all want. You know, we all want to accomplish yeah. our long-term goals. Um, and the way to get there is grit. And, and so I came back and I gave her my review. I think they still went and hired the guy. Um, but in the end she was like, Hey, why don't you write a book about grit? And you know, the, I had, you know, I'd always wanted to write a book, you know, the light bulb went off and that got me fired up and I buckled down and, and wrote a book, uh, called grow your grit. Um, a few months later, I was talking to another client who I thought wanted a book talk and she was like, Hey, do you do executive coaching? Oh, wow. And I was like, uh, heck yes, I do executive coaching. I, <laughs> I've been coaching yeah. folks all my life. And, uh, sure. that to me has been the, the executive coaching piece has been the rewarding way to give back and work with folks and help them learn and grow and develop in the same way that I, I think your slow smoke business uh, is doing that for you. Um, but both, both those things, I, I had to be, you know, whether you call it a pivot or uh, just open to new ideas, uh, as I'm trying to sort through what the next step is, I had to be open and be ready to seize what the, the world threw at me. So before we got on this podcast, one of the things I wanted to ask you was about leadership. And because I think, you know, you, you hear people say things that are somewhat cliche about, you know, I lead people into battle. I led someone into battle or whatever. You've literally led people into battle. So when you think about what the concept of leadership is or what is a leader, what, how would you define leadership or what is a leader? That's a huge topic. Um, sure. Uh, I think I, I think the first thing to think about is you know the you, you know the the movies are a bit cliche on military leadership and this idea that there's this draconian sort of uh, you order folks around and there's instantaneous uh, obedience and, and and all that. Um, you can do that once. Uh, especially when you're putting folks in harm's way. Um, but by and large, you have to show that, you know, lead by example, show that, uh, you know, what you're doing is the, is the right thing to do. Uh, and you've got to get buy-in out of the organization. Uh, to me, that's one of the biggest sort of misconceptions about the army is it is, you know, you're putting folks in harm's way, uh, you know, during uh, my battalion, I, I led the 3rd Battalion, 187 Infantry in Afghanistan. Uh, wow. During our year there in, in Afghanistan, we lost three soldiers and had another hundred mm. uh, wounded. Um, and so you're, you're asking folks to do 
tough stuff. There's lots of emotion involved uh, in doing that. Um, you know, y- you have to do it in a way that folks want to do it. And that's sort of the art uh, of leadership, not really the science. Uh, but um, that, um, that to me is sort of uh, leadership uh, in, in sort of the toughest conditions uh, imaginable. Let me give a little check to the chicken here. See how we're doing. Okay. So I've got one pro. I've got very varying probes here. So probe B is one twenty six and one is ninety. That's a you know twenty one twenty seven. Someone's a thirty degree swing. So we're having some uh, some changes here. That means I probably don't have the probe all the way into the meat, and I just burn the holy heck out of my hand. So I'm going to close that, and I'll just go off of the lower one. <laughs> Um, the probe is hot. The probe is hot. Yeah. Uh, so it's so, it's so cool to hear you talk about some of these stories too, because I think, you know, you, when you think of leadership for me, leadership has always been about, you know, responsibility. And I've, I used to, we talk to people in our company that would, you know, the hardest move in your career is moving from contributor, line level employee to now I've been asked to lead other people. And you may move into other roles further and further in your career, but surely one of the most difficult moves you'll ever make is the moment when your job no longer just hinges on what you do. It hinges on what other people do through your influence. And um, one of the things I tried to impress upon people that were going through that change was that you no longer have a job, you have responsibilities. And those responsibilities don't end when you go home and they don't end. And I know there's this whole like moving about how oh, overworking and that, but, but the point is like, you are responsible. It may be five minutes before you're supposed to go home, but then there's some crisis and you are just as responsible for it as you would have been if it had happened three hours ago. And the leaders that fail to grasp that, that still look at their job as an input and an output, I'm supposed to put in this many hours and get this much money out, um, are the people that, yeah, they probably survive day to day, but they really struggle to level up in their career and get to get to really great moments because they have failed to look at their career as a set of missions and responsibilities instead of a job and tasks to get paid for. Yeah. So, you know, what you're talking about is, is, you know, the, the, you know, folks going from sort of a tactical level position to maybe a a strategic level leader. And, and that jump is, is tough. Uh, You know, the, the most important things out of that strategic level person is to think about, you know, you've got to provide, you know, the vision uh, direction and guidance for the organization. You've got to communicate to the organization. And then oftentimes, like in in your role in the old company, you had to communicate up and out. You had to communicate to investors, communicate to the board, uh, sure. communicate to you know potential clients, and then you got to supervise the team's execution. Um, and those you know sort of five things or three things: providing guidance and direction and a, and a vision, uh, uh, communicating it, and then supervising the execution are really what m- makes the difference in these leaders that are no longer sort of direct leaders, you know, from, you know, a group of five to 10, 10 folks. And they're, they're, they're managing this huge organization. Yeah. And that 
idea of how you supervise the execution and the processes that you have to put in place, especially as you jump up a couple levels, uh, that's a real challenge. And, and one of the groups of executives that I'm, I'm doing executive coaching with, uh, I, as part of my executive coaching program, I call it the take your coach to work day. And so I, I, We'll fly out and follow around the executive for a day. Wow! Uh, and uh, the the inputs and uh, you know just observations that I've been able to help these these uh, folks uh, see and and how they run a visit at the at one of their locations, uh, how they can improve that, how they can think about their own system and processes uh, to make themselves more effective uh, and be value added, and not just you know, if you visit a place, you know, if you, if, if you supervise 45 locations uh, and you visit one and you come back uh, 180 days later and you don't have a good set of processes, that that location is going to be in the same place it was when when you showed up. And sure. And some of it is how you're coaching the leader below you, uh, how you're influencing that, that that person that's on the ground there every day and then how you're doing your follow up. Uh, it, it, it's fascinating. I, I, I really get fired up about this. We can talk about this stuff for hours about how you set up your processes, uh, as a leader, uh, as you're out there, you know, checking on locations and, and, and visiting, uh, parts of the, uh, of the group that you supervise. There's a question I wanted to ask you as well that, I mean, maybe this is a hard question, so I don't know if you need to take a swig of the PBR before you. <laughs> Like dive into this, but, uh, which I'm getting Uh-oh. dry here, by the way, I need to go, I need to probably re up here in a minute, Yeah, but you need another rye. So it's, you know, when, when people think of leadership and they, and they imagine themselves moving into a leadership role, oftentimes you're really only envisioning yourself, uh, standing on the top of the mountain you know, on the top of the podium in a situation where you've led somebody into success and you, you, you think about it in terms of what things look like when things are going really, really well. And, you know, you talked about your time in Afghanistan and Kosovo and some, some really challenging places, but Afghanistan in particular, extraordinarily challenging situation that our armed forces were in, which by the way, it's probably cliche to say this, but I, I would thank you for your service all you did for our country. I mean that not in a in disingenuous way, but genuinely like it's impressive to see somebody dedicate some so much of their life to to everybody else in their country. So thank you for that. No, thanks, Jerry. I um, appreciate it. But you know, particularly sort of pointing at Afghanistan and seeing on what you can draw from situations like that, how do you lead people when things are not going well? How do you lead people when you are coming off of a loss or coming off of a situation that did not go the way it was supposed to go and people are shook up or they're hurting or they're scared? What does leadership look like in those moments? Yeah. So, you know, the most important thing is, uh, is what I would call is over communicate, uh, at that point in time. Uh, and in communication, it's not just talking, uh, one of the skills that we all need to develop better, especially as leaders, is is being able to listen and hear the organization, mm-hmm. listen to the organization, hear what it's saying, and be able uh, to provide it what what it needs. Um, you know, one of the things that the leaders that are listening to this podcast are all going to have to deal with is leading organizational change, and uh, you know the 
the joke I like to say is, you know, nobody likes change, but they, they won't be against progress. Uh, and so if you could frame it as progress rather than change, uh, you might get uh, some folks, uh, more folks to buy into it. Uh, but overcoming that resistance to change, which, uh, you know, the, you know, your company, you know, grew from, from one person to, to hundreds or, or even thousands of folks, uh, you know, there was lots of change involved in there and there was lots of resistance to change. Uh, was just talking to a guy today, um, about, uh, this idea of doing, uh, more sort of town hall meetings as he's trying to lead this mm. change uh, in his organization. Um, one of the things that I that I did badly was uh, I led this huge change in the in in Ranger School. Uh, Ranger School had never had a woman attend Ranger School until 2015. Uh, we we led the gender integration of Ranger School. The first 19 women attended Ranger School, and three graduated. Wow! Which eventually influenced the Army to open all jobs and all units uh, to to everyone. Um, but there was huge resistance to change, and one of the things that that uh, we did at the end of it was go around and do a town hall meeting with each of the subordinate organizations, uh, nine organizations total. Um, and if I had to do it all over again and I coach anybody that I talked to about it, I would have done that at the beginning uh, and the end uh, of any time you're, you're leading some, some sort of seismic or, or huge organizational change. It's worth your time, one, to listen to the organization and two, to reinforce your, your message multiple levels down. It takes a lot of time. It's not easy, uh, but it's time well spent and uh, helps uh, smooth out that resistance to change and brings folks uh, becoming at least uh, you know passive supporters of the change rather than uh, active resistors. So communication is is a key element of you know leadership in difficult times. Right. Is that what you're saying? Like yeah. this communication is, is, is it everything or is it the main thing? It's the main thing. You know, you, you want to lead by example. You've got to show, you know, you as the leader has to show some optimism mm. uh, as part of it, because if you're pessimistic, the whole organization is going to be pessimistic. Um, right. You know, communication, optimism and leading by example, I would say, are the three things to fall back on, especially when times are tough or or you're leading through crisis. Uh, you, you know, uh, you know, Right now, you know, with, you know, folks are dealing, you know, folks led through, you know, the, the COVID crisis. Uh, and I don't f- think folks give themselves enough credit for how they handled it and led their organization and their team uh, through that, which is going to be, you know, our generation's equivalent of the depression. Yeah. You know, uh, you know this two to three year kind of kind of thing and how you led your team through that uh, is important. Um but but to to go back to you, you, your question, I I I I really think leading by example, showing some optimism, and then communicating with the organization to the point where you're over communicating to the organization are the three keys to to lead anything, lead any organization through through tough times or tumultuous times. I agree. I want to give a peek to the chicken again. All right. While I'm doing that, oh yeah, baby, it's getting a little crisp there on the wings. Come on. So um, if you're if you're looking at a team and you've got some leaders, do you feel like leadership is something that can be taught or do you feel like it's something that people are born with and you just meet some people that ah, this person's never going to be a leader? I'm, of course, convinced that leadership can be trained. You can improve your leadership. You can uh, 
make it better. So, you know, there are folks that are naturally skilled at it and there's, there's other folks that don't have as much skills, but, uh, certainly in my role now as a first in the army, I saw folks grow and develop as leaders. Uh, and, and now as an executive coach working with corporate executives, I see folks grow and develop as, as leaders in that capacity as well. Um, it takes some work, you know, you, you have to have a little bit of humility and be able to listen, uh, and, and, and understand, uh, you know, take the feedback and, and, you know, there's so many tools out there now, you know, you can take, uh, you know, assessments, you can do three sixties, you can get an executive coach, uh, you can go to classes on it. Uh, you know, there are so many ways to develop your, your leadership skills out there. Um, I don't know. Did did you see it uh, in the company? Uh, you know, did you see folks grow and develop as leaders as they moved up the ladder, or uh, as as they got more experience in positions? Yeah. So maybe this is a bit of a controversial position to take on that, but I feel like great leadership is something you sort of are. You're born with the ability to get there. You have to train yourself to get there. I yeah. think everybody can be trained to be an effective leader, effective leader. Okay. I think, I think you have to have some level, the people that become great ones, really great ones, people that would just line up to lead that, to have that person lead them into, you know, whatever. Scott McFarland was a outstanding CEO of Procter U, great friend, incredible person. And, and one of the things I noticed about him from a business perspective was when I first started working with him and I remember going to have coffee with him and we bumped into some people that he had previously worked with and the, the reverence that people had about that guy, uh, when they talked about it, Oh man, this guy loved anything. I mean, and, and he could call on people that had great jobs and were doing really well, but they had worked with him in the company. He's like in the past. And he would say, well, would you consider coming to work? And they just are willing to drop everything and come work with him. And it was because he had that like extra thing um, that people just wanted to gravitate towards. And so I feel like, you know, like I said, I think I think everybody can be trained to be a leader and get the job done, to be one that really, really puts a dent in the universe. I think you sort of have to have that ability to stand up in front of people and um, it doesn't mean you have to be an extrovert. I've met plenty of introverted people that are great leaders. Um, but it does mean that you have to be comfortable speaking in front of people. And you have to be comfortable disappointing people in the, in the short term because you are looking at the long term. And I, I've often said, you know, leaders, one of the hallmarks of great leaders is the ability to make hard decisions. Because hard decisions are a, a, the hallmark of leadership. Like, you know, if you just listen to the troops, you know, you just listen. To, I shouldn't use that phrase in, in your presence because it's literal troops when you think about it. But if you're just listening to the people that you're leading, they are not always going to lead you where the organization needs to go. And you have to be smart enough as a leader to sort of filter out what is genuine feedback uh, uh, that's relative to the mission and what's noise where people are worried about whatever it is that they can sort of see not further than the hood of the car. Right. And it's hard, you know, that part's hard to train. I think it's harder. It's easy to sort of 
show people the little system you talked about systems and organization like it, you can train that stuff right it's yeah. like this is how you should say this. this is how you should run your day this is how you should say this is how you should feedback you know give feedback to people this is how you should follow up it's harder to get people to understand the nuance of what they're hearing from the people that they're leading and figuring out what's real and what's something that they got to push through right I wouldn't say that's a controversial. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, saying saying people are you're born to be a leader or not, I think. Oh, what do you mean? Like, I don't know. I think yeah. I think the great ones probably are wake up in the morning and are fifty percent of the way there. Yeah. But there's a lot. But but a lot of them are idiots and, sh- and schmucks and and can't get the other fifty percent because they're arrogant or whatever. They're lazy. You know, I've got I've got a lot of people that I've known in high school and in college that I thought were going to be incredible leaders one day and have turned out to be anything but right, right. for, for a variety of reasons. It is always funny to, to look at, you know, look back at your high school friends or, or college friends and, and see who derailed and who, who was able to achieve greatness. Yeah. It's not, it's not always the person that you thought, right? No, and it's a shame when you when you sort of see people that you. I mean, I know people that I went to college with that, um, gosh, were just ten times had way more <laughs> to work with than I did. Like you know, just ten times more charisma and um, just just everything. But but then there was some other fatal flaw: the ability to get you know, distracted or the ability to just never want to work hard or never, you know, it's just different. depends on who you're talking about. Right. I mean, there's, there's, it's sad to see people, uh, self-destruct. There's a, there's an author, I think her name is Brianna West. And she's, she wrote a book called the mountain is you. And I just started this book and it's all about making people realize that the thing that's standing in the way of them having the life they want, the career they want, the success they want, the relationships they want or whatever is oftentimes themselves, right? And, and their yeah. habits and their belief systems. And, you know, it's hard to get people to sort of see that in look, look inwardly into that. Like you said, you know, there's a, there's a huge amount of, you know, folks may have a whole bunch of the skills, but they lack perseverance. Yeah. Uh, they don't build good habits. Uh, so they're not able to make you know, small incremental improvements every day and, and, and get themselves to wherever they want to go. Um, it, it, it is, uh, like you said, I, I think sometimes folks, uh, have that, you know, they can't get out of their own way. Right. And, uh, you know, they got all this talent and, and yet they, they can't overcome themselves. It's a shame when that happens too, because I think, yeah, you know, I think if you have a, as a spiritual person, like I feel like if if God's given you the ability to do some great things, it's almost like your responsibility to go do them because you never know what's on the other side of that or what's going to happen, what 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 missions or opportunities to help people are going to emerge as you go on that journey of trying to be the best, most effective person that you can become. And I don't I don't think the I don't think a lot of people appreciate that that if you have the talent and the know-how that you almost have a responsibility to go take that as far as you can take it yeah uh within reason because there's there's some reason that you're supposed to do that there's some reason why you were given those gifts and there's no way to know what that reason is until you embark on that journey 
Yeah. Yeah. This is some high level Oprah stuff right here. <laughs> this is like we're, I better we're check going, some, we're, we're going a lot I better farther. pour some more whiskey and, t- and check the chicken here to just take the take the take the temperature down here. All right, so we're getting real close. What you think, David? I think it looks good. Well, the we're the, getting there. The We've got one probe cam. reading one thirty two, which is firm salmonella territory. So we want to be careful with that. You trying to get to one sixty? I'm going to try to get to one sixty. Maybe 165. I just pushed that one in a little bit further because the other probes read 179, but it's really on the it's really on the very outer edge of it. And when you do the, the challenge here is when you stuff a chicken with cornbread uh, like that, cornbread batter, I guess you would say, is if you you stick the probe into the cornbread part, you're just measuring the cornbread, and that's not really telling you what you need to know. You need to know what the yeah. Um, I mean, it's relevant, but you, you need to know what the meat's doing. So if you, so you've started your business, um, how do you find clients right now? How, how are you, how are you finding business? Yeah. So one of the things that I, that I do is, uh, I blog, uh, every Tuesday. Uh, so on, on the five coat consulting group.com, uh, this year I set out to do a series on leaders and leadership uh, from World War II, uh, in specific U.S. leaders in the European, U.S. and allied leaders in the European theater of operations. And so I started out, uh, did some stuff with, uh, Eisenhower, uh, this week was Bradley, uh, last week was, uh, General Gavin, uh, and then I'm going to work my way all the way down to the, the troops that go ashore at Utah and Omaha beach on D-Day. And then we'll cover market garden in the fall. And then the battle of the bulge, uh, in around Christmas time. Um, they'll end up being about 40 blog posts on leaders. Uh, Bradley, wow. uh, Omar Bradley was, was one of the four-star generals. He eventually makes five-star general, uh, after the war, but, um, he was one of the key subordinates of Eisenhower, uh, in the war. But in 1970, he gives his talk, uh, to the army war college about what he thought, uh, leadership was. And, and so, uh, I went through that and listed out the 10, the 10 things that Bradley uh, thought was important uh, about leadership and shared that uh, with the, with the group that follows me. Um, I also blog once a month on the war in Ukraine. Wow. Uh, when the war kicked off last, uh, last February, uh, I got super engrossed uh, in it and um, it's not anything on leadership, but I tracked the number of vehicles that are destroyed on either side uh, through, uh, open source, uh, a uh, uh, system called, uh, or website called Onyx, um, and, uh, try to make some assessments, uh, off of, off of those losses on, on both the Ukrainian side and the Russian side. So that, that, that that's what I do. That's super interesting. I did not intend to ask this, but now that I know that you've looked at it, I mean, from a high level, what is your opinion of what's going on? in the Ukraine is, are, is it a true stalemate is, is where, where do you think this is headed? So first off, I'll, I'll say that I, I am surprised that Russia has been able to absorb the tank and, uh, infantry fighting vehicle losses that they've, they've taken over the last now 13, 14 months. Um, just the sheer number of, uh, of, uh, you know, they've lost almost 2000 tanks. Wow. Holy moly. Yeah, the 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 front did not move much in uh, March. So I published I, I published at the beginning of the month. The first Tuesday of the month is always the Ukraine uh, blog post. 
Um, they lost about 100 tanks in the month of March. Uh, they'll probably lose 100 to 150 here in April. Uh, but not much territory changed hands in in March. Part of that was it's it was winter and 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 uh, it's not easy to drive around uh, frozen or muddy fields and and so neither side has really uh, sort of uh, gotten uh, to to get an advantage. Uh, so yes, it is kind of a stalemate right now, um, and it will be interesting to see where it goes here in the in the coming months. Um, still can't believe the the amount of losses that the Russians have taken over the last fourteen months. So yeah, I mean, I think the the you know the pop popular opinion when this started was that oh my God, Russia's going to like just steamroll Ukraine, and it's we're you know we're going to be looking at who knows you know another Georgia situation, something like that, yeah. and and it's been anything but that, right? And here you're right. talking about just the tremendous amount of losses and how sort of pot committed. Russia seems to be now because they have lost so much in the pursuit of this for them to be, you know, perceived as one of the world's superpowers, you know, back and down would be quite a blow, I think, to their national ego. And, and I don't know that that's, I don't know that that's in the cards, but I don't know. I mean, to your point, like, I don't know how they sustain that, that kind of losses. I mean, at some point there is a, um, I saw some expert that said that there's not, Russia or, or or its predecessors have never lost a war. I'm going to butcher this tab, but it's sort of like never lost a war where they haven't lost like something crazy, like half a million men or something wild like that. Yeah. Um, and so until they get to that crazy number, they're not even going to consider pulling out. Yeah. I don't know if you saw me just sneak off a second ago, but I re-upped on some whiskey there. Thank you very much. How's the PBR coming? Good. PBR's PBR still cold. Uh, it I looks like it. it would go great with that chicken. PBR underrated. So uh, underneath, uh, or excuse me, behind you, I see a very interesting uh, flag on the wall. Yeah, so that's a that's a Iraqi flag uh, that I that I captured in Mosul, Iraq, in two thousand three as part of the invasion. Um, so it's twenty years since the invasion. Uh, so it would have been right about this time in April. Uh, I was part of the one hundred first Airborne Division. We fought our way from the Kuwait border uh, up to Baghdad, and then went all the way up to Mosul in, in the in the north. Um, and so I got that uh, when we when we made it to Mosul. Wow! One of the the, the few things that I, I brought home uh, from from that that part of the war. And then I got to go back to Iraq in two thousand five, and then again in two thousand seven and eight um, for a, for a for a threefer. I got chills when you just said that, by the way, like I, I literally got kind of overcome for a moment. Like you're talking about bringing a flag home from Mosul. I mean, my goodness, like what an incredible, I mean, you you, you can find a thousand people and, and play out their entire lives and none of them will have had the kind of experience that I'm sure that you went through in those type of situations. Well, you know, there there were a lot of us uh, that did the invasion. Uh, there's lots of folks out there uh, that that had that experience. But but uh, you know, hopefully, uh, getting the opportunity to tell some of these stories uh, to to your audience is a way that folks uh, still remember that the the war happened, the invasion happened. Yeah. Um, I just went to a symposium that talked about Iraq 20 years later, uh, hosted here in Columbus at the National Infantry Museum. Uh, it was, it, it was nice to reflect, you know, it, you know, you said, 
early on that, you know, once you have these moments of reflection, you know, things open up for you. Uh, and uh, it's good to, to look back 20 years and, and, you know, we did a few things right uh, in Iraq. We did a lot of things wrong uh, and uh, sort of muddled our way through uh, to what Iraq is uh, today in 2023. But I, I do have friends uh, that do business in Iraq now. They walk around uh, downtown Baghdad. Uh, and so things have turned out uh, okay, but it, it was a long road to get there uh, over the last 20 years. What do you think the legacy of that conflict is going to be? The bumper sticker that that conflict is, you know, uh, we went to war on on basically trumped up intel, uh, and you know, it's it's a war we didn't need to need to do. Uh, and since then, it's been proven, you know, there wasn't WMD and and Saddam didn't have ties to Al Qaeda. Um, and maybe if we'd focus more on Afghanistan rather than than spending all this energy to invade Iraq and and um, help it uh, grow, that uh, that war might have turned out better too. Yeah, I, I think you, I mean we could spend a three hour symposium here <laughs> dissecting <laughs> that. I, I so I want to ask you a sort of slightly different question: How much time did you spend in Iraq, all all told, through the the three tours there? The invasion was about three four months. Uh, thirteen month tour in uh '05, and then uh fifteen months in '07 '08. So twenty twenty eight, thirty two ish. Um, so a couple couple years, really. Like, yeah, you know, three three over three years cumulatively. So while you were there, were there? Did you get to spend time? Sort of. Did you get to spend much time? out in what you would consider sort of cultural Iraq, you know, regular, you're not, you're not on the base. You're like sort of out among the people. Did you get to spend a lot of time out there or were you always really focused in the base? You know, the O three uh, war, you know, we, we basically spent the war living in the Humvee driving North to Mosul and, and, and fighting. Um, there were a couple of times when we occupied, uh, you know, like one time we op- occupied an AK-47 factory uh, on the outskirts of Baghdad that was making uh, gold and silver uh, AK-47s for Saddam to present uh, to people. Which, that was kind of interesting. Were you able to take one home? Uh, no, at that point, at that point in time, we weren't allowed to take uh, war trophies. <laughs> and then that yeah. rule got uh, got got turned over about a month later. Um, That's, yeah, you could have had one. Right. It could have had one. Um so I, I got to meet the Iraqis, um, not as much as I got to meet the Afghans, um, because Afghans, I was, uh, my goal was to try to be outside the wire six days a week in a- a- Afghanistan. Uh, the subsequent tours in Iraq, I was outside the wire maybe one day a week. Um, okay. I, I was an operations officer at that point in time, so supposed to synchronize uh, the work of 3,500 people or 700 people. Um, and so I didn't get as much time outside working with, with Iraqis. Um, interestingly, my assessment out of the two is, um, you know, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed meeting the Iraqis. I I enjoyed working with them, um, and had a, had a good relationship with them. Iraq was a much more modern country. Um, you know, the, the oil had, provided a certain standard of living that wasn't the same in Afghanistan. 
Um, so there were things that I could do, like, uh, you know, every night I would have my interpreter show up uh, and we would call the Iraq army guys that we were working with and just, you know, shoot the breeze, find out what Intel, Intel they may have gotten or what they did or if they needed help. Um, and so there were ways that I could bridge it where in Afghanistan, they shut down the cell phone network at, at 6 PM. Um, oh, wow. and so you couldn't make those, those, those same sort of phone calls out to the, the folks that you were working with. So you had to go meet them face, face to face. What is Iraqi culture? Like if you meet, if you meet a, the average Iraqi citizen, you know, what's, what's that culture like? What kind of food do they eat? Are they, are they friendly? Are they, what, what, what is, what does Iraqi culture look like? I guess uh, let's talk food since this is a, 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 they don't do barbecue. Uh, well, they do do a version of barbecue, you know, the, you know, the goat and sheep, uh, are prevalent. Uh, yeah. you know, it's a big deal to slaughter a sheep or a goat. Uh, they'll cook it up. Uh, we would call it, uh, you know, the pejorative term was a goat grab where they would, uh, basically take, uh, plywood and put it on sawhorses and then cover it. And then they'd put this huge thing of rice with, uh, raisins and, and other things in it. And then you'd get, there'd be meat and you get some pieces of bread and you could reach in, you know, everybody would sort of stand around the sawhorses and you could reach in and grab, uh, your meat, uh, and rice oh, and, wow. and, and just eat it. Uh, they were also big on they, they were big tea drinkers and the tea would sort of come in this large kind of shot glass. Um, and it would have like a a half inch of sugar on the bottom and, uh, you know, the rest of it with this deep Brown, uh, tea. Um, I, I, I really liked the tea. The tea was, the tea was good. And I enjoyed going to the, to the, 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 the opportunities where we got to eat, uh, with the Iraqis, um, you know, Iraq is divided into, there's, there's three different groups in Iraq. There's the Kurds, the Sunnis and the Shias, um, Sunni and Shia are both, uh, um, subsets of Islam, but they believe different things. And so each group had slightly different, a slightly, a slightly different culture. They were all part of the same country, but each, each each group was was slightly different. Well, that's fascinating to me. I mean, it's it, you know, that's not hard to wrap your head around. I mean, if you if you're in the United States and you go find somebody who's like a Bay Area California guy and uh, an Alabama redneck and a guy from Brooklyn, New York, and you put them all in the same room, like yeah, they're, the cultures are distinctly different, right? And um, I can imagine the the Sunnis and the Shias are, are probably the same way. Did you did you get a chance to experience Afghan food very often when you were in Afghanistan? Yeah, I, I ate a lot. I spent a lot of time uh, out with the Afghans. Um, so in that role, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with the governor of Paktika province and, and eventually Ghazni province. Uh, and then there were multiple organizations that we work with, the Afghan police, the Afghan army, and then a group called the NDS uh, or National National Directorate of Security. Um, and so e- each of those folks had key players. And uh, as the leader of this 600-person organization, the, the largest American organization, I had to go see those guys face-to-face. And so uh, there were lots of uh, opportunities to eat and more tea. 
um, <laughs> uh, there. Um, and just, uh, it, I, I had, uh, interestingly, uh, you know, as you compare and contrast the two, the, the two groups, uh, and this is just a general rule of thumb, uh, organizationally, the, the, the Iraqis were more organized, you know, the, the groups that we work with were more organized than the Afghan groups, but I made better friends with the Afghans. The Afghans just, um, to, I don't know, for whatever reason, I made better, better friends and, and, uh, you know, closer contacts with, the with the Afghans. Part of that may have been the difference in the role between the two countries. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I, I spent more time with the Afghans, but, but, uh, the Afghans did this big flat bread, uh, um, that was, you know, the, every corner would have this bread bakery place that had just this, this, these huge pieces of flat bread that were really, really good to eat. Is there a food somewhere in the Middle East that you miss being back home in the States? Is there anything that you're like, boy, I wish I could get my hands on some blank. I've been to an Afghan restaurant. Uh, part of the, the struggle uh, in with, with both places is I tended to have an interpreter in both places. Um, but in both places I was working, I, I, my job on the American side took so much energy that I didn't have time to pick up much of the language ever other than to say hello and goodbye and thank you. Right. Um, and the interpreters would always order. And, and so I never really knew what I was getting. And so when you go into the restaurant, it's tough to go, oh yeah, I want to get, <laughs> I want to get this or that because um, you don't know what to say. You're just like, ah, oh, the thing that used to have the thing yeah. and, the, and the other thing. The one place I go to probably once a month though, is, uh, there's a really great Korean restaurant here in town. I did a year in Korea. Um, and, uh, Yaki Mandu and Bibimbap, uh, Bibimbap, uh, is this, uh, stone bowl with rice and an egg and some meat Ooh. and some vegetables. It's kind of the original sort of pokey, pokey bowl, and then you can put the red uh, hot sauce on it uh, and mix it all up. And the stone bowl will keep cooking the rice along the edge. And then the the rice on the edge gets all crispy. Um, oh, wow. It, it's it's amazing. That sounds great. I don't I don't think we have Korean restaurants in Birmingham, but maybe we do. If, I, if we do, like, hit me up on email if you're hearing this. But... All right. All right. I'll be through Birmingham next week. That sounds good. I mean, crowdsource it. Like <laughs> I'm, I certainly know where all the barbecue joints are, but not the Korean restaurants. So David, I could, I could talk to you all day about this stuff. It's so fascinating. Your, your career is incredible. The service that you did for our country is amazing. Um, if somebody wanted to connect with you uh, about, you know, executive coaching or anything else, how could they get a hold of you? You know, the website, uh, the five code consulting group.com. Uh, my email, uh, david.fivecoat at the fivecoatconsultinggroup.com. Uh, please hit me up. Uh, would love to talk to you uh, and love to see if I can help you out uh, become a better leader. Where can they find that blog? Is that on your the Five Coat Consulting Group blog, uh, website? Yeah, that's it, it's on the on the Five Coat uh, Consulting Group. There'll be a little pop up that shows up if they uh, subscribe to it. They'll get an email uh, in their inbox once a week uh, with the latest blog post. Awesome. All right, let's give one last little chicken check. I've got a probe at 160, which means we're almost home. Can you wow, see that, that thing David? looks great. Look at that, baby. Come on. Get you some of that. So the chicken's getting a little crispy skin on the outside. We see the cornbread uh, stuff is starting to cook in the middle. We've got a nice crispy 
wings on the outside. Uh, obviously, we did take the drumsticks off of this chicken, which we're going to use in another kind of thing. But um, excited to get into this. Thank you so much, David, for being here. Guys, if you found this episode valuable, I would thank you. I would I'd be so grateful if you could uh, share this with a couple of people. If you found some valuable tidbits in this episode, um, certainly go find David at his website. Uh, follow us on social media where you look for Smoke Smoke Business on TikTok, Instagram. We're 20,000 uh, followers strong on those uh, different platforms like and follow and make sure you get the new episodes subscribe thank you guys so much for being here and we'll see you next time on the slow smoke business thanks david <laughs>